Dear listener, let's go back to where it all began. In 1947, a pilot flying over Washington State reported seeing nine objects flying at incredible speeds near Mount Rainier. The media jumped all over it. The term, flying saucer, was not only born, it went 1940s viral. Yeah, see, nothing has changed. Anyways, more than a week later, a rancher, who had just heard about the sighting, considers the strange debris he'd recently found on his New Mexico property. Tinfoil, some rubber strips, sticks. He turns the wreckage into the local sheriff's station. The sheriff reports to the Roswell Army Airfield. A few days later, this story comes out. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. The Army quickly walks it back, claiming it was just a weather balloon, not aliens. Everyone go back inside and eat your jello salads and spam. Don't panic. Then, in the 1980s, four decades later, a series of leaked documents from the United States government mysteriously appeared. The classified documents contained various descriptions of UFO encounters, including the one that happened in Roswell in 1947. A cover-up exposed. And then the Air Force and the FBI say, <laughs> no way, this is a hoax. Just go back to eating whatever people in the 80s ate. I, I actually don't know. Iceberg wedge salads? The government even literally scribbled a big fat bogus across one of the pages. Case closed. But it wasn't. In the 90s, the US government released a report claiming the debris was neither a UFO nor a weather balloon. It was actually from a system the army was developing that would detect Soviet nuclear bomb tests using high altitude balloons and acoustic sensors. But what if this was just a cover-up, covering up the cover-up? from all those years ago. Listener, are you keeping up? But along with the feds who tell the public to move it along, there's nothing strange to see here, behind the curtain, US intelligence agencies continued to dabble in the weird shit world for decades, including Andrei Puharic. Puharic was a medical doctor and scientist who worked for the CIA. He also worked on an offshoot of MKUltra. Remember, MKUltra is the program that experimented with mind control on unwitting subjects. As part of it, in the 1950s, Puharic began testing people who claimed to have psychic abilities. At one point, Puharic invited a mystic into his lab who, according to accounts, fell into a deep trance and began to speak in a different voice. Am calling... We are nine principles and forces, personalities, if you will, working in... For over an hour, the healer channels the nine, claiming that they are divine entities, beings who have gone by many names, and have always been here, and will always be here. We are forces, and the nature of our work is to accentuate the positive. We propose to work with you in some essential respects, with the relation of psychokinesis, clairvoyance, etc., at the present state, say the truth. Soon we will come to basic universal Puharic was inspired. In the 50s and 60s, he goes on spiritual missions that take him to Mexico and Latin America. He seeks out healers, shaman, and a whole shit ton of hallucinogenic drugs. He's working constantly, hunting for the truth. 
His higher-ups at the CIA think it all sounds swell. Real swell. So they keep expensing his paranormal research. Um, listener, I don't know how employees expense things before credit cards. But whatever it was, it can't be a more annoying process than the one my bosses have imposed. Anyways, decades of research, moving from lab to lab, he is consumed. And the CIA's payroll team, working through various companies and sponsors, they keep approving his travel and the bowls full of toad venom that enable a person to transcend time and space. To be clear, that last part's a joke. I cannot confirm that toad venom was approved or provided for Puharich, but also I can't confirm that it didn't happen. The CIA were willing to seriously consider anything and pay for the trouble, as long as it meant we got to it first. Dear listener, imagine a CIA cafeteria. Waiting in line for the tuna melt with his little cardboard milk on his tray is Baharich. He's chatting with the aliens about expense forms so he can go to Morocco. He sits at the table that's for the weird kids, people who want to weaponize the occult, mental powers, and space ghosts. The other agents snicker out of earshot, but the weird kids still seem to get the funding they want. Then, in varsity jackets are the counterintelligence folks. They write bogus on papers and say UFOs aren't real, you dork. In between keg stands, they whisper, well, maybe they are real, wink wink. Truth seekers, disinformation artists, all these same people work for the same friggin' Department of Friggin' Defense. As you already know, dear listener, we didn't get the opportunity to sit down with Lou Elizondo for a longer interview. But we were able to go back and talk to Chris Mellon and Jim Semivan again. We wanted to sit down at both lunch tables to understand what they actually believe. I'm MJ Benias. This is Fringe Network, Alien State, Transmission 7. Make of it what you will. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've left to the stars. You and you and I know Lou are working closely together, but what is your sort of role right now? I remain active as a uh, private equity investor. This, of course, is the very powerful Chris Mellon. While it's been three administrations since he had a government position, he still seems very active in those circles. In terms of this issue, by and large, I'm involved in consulting with people in the in the government, uh, largely informally, uh, networking with people who have a shared interest in this topic. What's an example to help somebody understand, you know, why you are a credible and knowledgeable source in this arena when it comes to a topic, you know, like UFOs that have been laughed at for decades now as sort of a fringe topic? Uh, I have been wirebrushed uh, pretty well over the years. I served in, in very high level relatively high level positions where there are a lot of opportunities to 
to say or do dumb things that will will quickly get you fired. <laughs> so uh, I was able to operate at that level with the senators and Pentagon for a number of years and managed not to embarrass myself too badly, I think. You mentioned previously in this interview where you said that you grew up reading these books and you had this idea of the government's not really telling the truth. Has that kind of always been in the back of your mind that maybe there is some sort of crashed flying saucer in some bunker somewhere and we just don't know? Absolutely. That's a one-word qu- answer to a very complicated question. Can you elaborate? It's a very complicated question. And one of the complicating factors is that I don't like to say things that I can't back up. And I've had a number of people tell me that, yeah, this is absolutely true. And they've said this and that and the other thing. But that's hearsay. And none of those people actually touched anything. Was it? easier to get the job done in the private sector or was it easier to get the job done, you know, working under the umbrella of the government? It is actually uh, easier many times in the private sector. So, for example, if you're in the bureaucracy, if you're in the Defense Department and you want to get something in front of the Deputy Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of Defense, you have to go through approved channels Maybe it'll make the cut. Maybe it'll get into the queue. Maybe after a year, if I'm in the private sector, I can write an op-ed. There's a good chance that it'll come to the secretary's attention very quickly. The inherent issue, though, with the private sector is, is you don't really have access to any of the military sort of evidence or assets or data, right? So if you're within the private world, you can really only access you know, public data. Does that kind of become a hindrance in all this? Well, that's not always the case. You could be in the private sector and still be a consultant. The consultant, I've been able to, to maintain uh, some, some access. Sometimes that's a disadvantage, of course, because you're at, you're at some risk and you have to be very careful not to refer to that information uh, in the public domain. I feel like for the UFO community, that's a bit of a sticking point, right? I can see people like launching verbal assaults on you, basically saying you're a gatekeeper or a secret keeper. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, you know, I don't make the laws and I have to comply with them. I don't feel that I owe anybody an apology about anything that I've done. But I was the one who proposed and lobbied for two years to get that unclassified report that came out last June. Mm-hmm. So if people want to take those shots at me, fine. I'm doing everything I can to uh, try to contribute to transparency. I brought those videos to the New York Times. You know, I knocked myself out doing this stuff. I'm not getting paid for this. I'm doing it on my free time. And people are attacking me because I'm not willing to go to jail for the cause or something. I've said it before. But it's a tricky position for Mellon. There's just a lot he can't talk about. In researching, I discovered that Mellon in the 90s was on a committee that oversaw the funding for the Army's remote viewing program. Remember, this is the thing where if you concentrate really hard, you can see faraway places or into the future. That kind of jazz. It ran from the 1970s into the 90s. Can you talk about that? I'm really curious. <laughs> sure, so... Actually, I can't talk much about it. This gets back into the embargo on things in the committee. All I can say is that uh, I, I attended some briefings as a staff member, and that was about the extent of my involvement. I'll, I'll tell you something I can talk more freely about. 
After 9-11, we were approached by some people from that community, claimed to have information about a potential next terrorist attack. And we didn't exclude anything. We didn't say, oh, my gosh, these guys are nuts. We took it on board and um, tried to pursue it. Somebody said, whenever I see, you know, this in a dream, then it, you know, it presages a, a terrorist event and it's happened three times and I just had that dream. This is going to happen over here and whatever. Didn't happen. Here's the thing about this. Um, some of my my colleagues and dear friends are fervent believers in this, and they have considerably more experience than I do. And one of the reasons, because there have been occasions where this seemed to work brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're right. I'm not deep on this. It's, again, it's very intriguing. I, I think it's why not research those things? Nothing should be off limits. I haven't seen much in the way of data, though, at this point, that's uh, terribly persuasive in terms of the efficacy of remote viewing. He seems skeptical on remote viewing, but to Mellon, perhaps there are some ideas that are worth looking into. What do you say to someone who, who thinks like these fighter pilot videos or all this stuff that's just come out is just more conspiracy and there's nothing to it? Well, the Defense Department has publicly acknowledged the authenticity of the videos, and that's not something they're eager to do. That alone tell you something. Pilots have spoken very openly, describing their real-life experiences, so you can hear it from the pilots. And if you think they're liars, if you don't trust U.S. military personnel, if you don't trust the Department of Defense at all, and uh, so forth, there's not much I can do for you, really. But there is something you can do for me. Buy, listen, subscribe, text your senator, do whatever our ads tell you. I'm remote viewing you, listener, right now to see if you're doing it. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. There he is. How's it going, Jim? Can you hear me now? Here's Jim Semivan. We met him all the way back in Transmission 1. He's the former spy who read DeLong's sci-fi novel and traded in his spy badge for a vice president of To the Stars badge. COVID just killed us for two years. I mean, it just changed everything. Some of the investors that were looking at us, you know, sort of sort of pulled back. Uh, and so we decided to restructure the company a little bit and focus on what we know we do, we're going to do best and we're doing best right now. And that is the entertainment side. 
So we have, gosh, you know, a dozen different projects going on. But don't worry, they are still the everything store for weird shit. We do have some pretty interesting AI that we think could be a lot, that we think is unique. Some event tells me to the stars is investing in a special AI, that's artificial intelligence for long, to scour MUFON reports. Yes, the hobbyist reports on sightings and weird happenings. This AI will try to find patterns in the data. I was shocked at how expensive that is. It's a higher tech way of doing something similar to what ex-filer Robert Bush and his crew were doing for Robert Bigelow's company. It's 2022. X-filing is being automated. But what will the data be used for? I guess it depends on what they discover. I spoke at some people in the intelligence community at very high levels, and they said, if you come across anything, any pattern that you see, we're, we're very interested in this. And we'd be interested in you sharing that data with us if you wanted to. And my answer was, of course, we will. The company that wants us all talking and thinking about UAP differently, that wants more information to be public, well, they will share data with the Department of Defense. Of course they will. To the stars and the U.S. government. It's an odd and complicated relationship. The military will weaponize anything if it's to their advantage. When we started getting inklings, the Russians were brainwashing, things along those lines. They weaponized psychokinesis. Can you weaponize telepathy and remote viewing? Because we knew they were doing something so very similar. You almost have to look at it because you don't know enough to say, well, they're never going to make you know any headway on this. You, just, you can't take that chance. You almost have to look at it. Do you, do you think there's a, a sort of like a UAP Cold War going on where you have multiple countries looking at this topic and everyone's in this race to get to it first? Yes, and that's exactly the case. When you see a craft that flies without any visible means of propulsion or that do maneuverability the way they do, I mean, what that does, it, it, you start throwing money at that. You're going to come up with something. You're going to come up with a technology that mimics that or gets close to that. So... Everybody's rushing to do this. And I think the reason why we're hiding a lot of this stuff is because, once again, you do not want to give your adversaries any advantages. It's a national security thing. As Semivan sees it, right now, there's an arms race. Lots of government interest in making sure the U.S. has the best aircraft in all of the airspace. Fair enough. And Semivan and his To The Stars colleagues, well, they're team red, white, and blue. So they want to ensure that as well. There definitely has to be someone besides the military doing this. There has to be somebody who's able to engage. The military doesn't own this topic. This is happening to everybody. It's not only happening over nuclear sites. It's happening in backyards. It's happening in the middle of nowhere. People are being engaged with this all the time, normal, everyday people. So, But to study this as a private company, well, that's tricky. For to the stars, compromises can be made. In 2019, To The Stars brokered a deal with the military to study some exciting stuff the company got their hands on. The military's finally gotten in touch with us, and they are now reenacted their crater. And I think in the next um, week, I have a, a Zoom meeting with them. And we also have some private defense contractors uh, working with us on this also. Lou Elizondo, our former To The Stars star, seems to have helped organize the partnership. His name is still on the contract. So what deal did he deal? Well, some years ago, Tom DeLong acquired some exotic metamaterials. 
Here's Tom DeLong's description and clarification. So it's it's made like atom by atom, it looks like, to perform a certain task. There's 86 layers of um, a couple different elements, bismuth, magnesium, and then, um, God, is the other one like zinc or uh, fucking, um, I forgot what the third one is. But in any case, um, the, number one, these these materials shouldn't even like go together. Okay, so outside of DeLong's explanation, uh, metamaterials in really simple terms are manufactured composites of different metals or plastics that are designed to perform a certain task. Ever wonder why stealth aircraft are so stealthy? Well, the surface of the plane is composed of a metamaterial that can absorb and deflect radar. Anyway, DeLong spent 35 grand for some bits of metamaterial. And the best part? It was allegedly ripped off a flying saucer that crashed in New Mexico back in 1947. So they say. This is an asset of To The Stars, and we're the first private company ever in history that has an open contract that's being discussed openly, you know, about material that could be from a, a crashed UAP. In order to study the material, the military has agreed to provide all the nerdy stuff, personnel, facilities, and equipment. Someone to run out of the lab and scream, Oh God, oh no, what have we done? If studying this material doesn't lead to Armageddon, but rather something profitable, for instance, if this stuff makes for a killing machine, then the military and to the stars will share the profits. Fair enough. But say this 35k worth of whatever it is, is alien. Say it's Garminbosia, removed from the floor of the Red Room. Well, Tom DeLong would want to shout it out like he's Gordon Cole, right? Listen, this, this is a podcast on UFOs. I assume at least half of you are finding this funny. If you're lost, go watch Twin Peaks. You're welcome, by the way. Okay, uh, back on track. If the research determines this is from another planet or another dimension, DeLong would love to speak about that, right? I mean, he had a good time speculating what it could be to us. We believe it might even have a waveguide function of a very high frequency that might have some anomalous effects on the physical kind of matter or boundary around it. You know, do, does it lose mass? Does it slow time? Does it, you know, who knows? It's, it, we are very focused on trying to find out answers to some of that. He'd love to talk about the result, but because the military is working with them to find answers, that information would be classified. Yes, if the results are sexy, it becomes a state secret. Bummer. And Semivan seems to be okay with that. Uh, kind of. They want some truth out there, but he says to the stars wonders if we, the public, can handle the truth. And hearing Semivan talk, the truth that's out there is much further out there than aliens and saucers hanging out with fighter pilots. Everybody's talking about the nuts and bolts side. Oh, these incredible craft, they're doing all this kind of incredible stuff. But they haven't really focused on the other side yet. When they focus on the other side, that's when it's going to get really weird. Very strange. The other side that Semivan is talking about is the theories way further out in the fringes than UFOs. It's things like precognitive non-human intelligence, much like Puharch's The Nine, all-knowing entities. Something Semivan believes in, and believes the public on the whole is going to have to come to terms with in the future. Semivan, he's worried about the children. 
how do you explain you know, to an eight-year-old who sees this on television? And you say, we go, mom, dad, what are those? Well, we don't know. Well, according to whatever the show I was watching, you know, can control our minds. Like the things allegedly being studied at Skinwalker Ranch that made the computer monitor spell I-living, perhaps? They can do, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, are they going to come and get us? You know what I mean? You know, this is something we discussed at TTSA very early on. I mean, we want to be scaring seven-year-olds. <laughs> and uh, But then again, it, it ended up with, like, what the hell are you going to do? I mean, you know, it's, it's out there. It's just, you can't hide it. This is in the background, but it's going to be in the foreground, and it's going to be at a not pretty soon, within two, two years, three years. This is going to be a major topic of discussion. I've spoken to a lot of individuals who who believe that this has nothing really to do with, you know, let's say, you know, physical aliens from another planet, but rather this is something much more um, using the term maybe supernatural or paranormal, you know, fits more than, let's say, ufological or, or, or alien or extraterrestrial. Um, you know, is that your opinion on this? Um, that's one way of looking at it. Um, uh, you know, extraterrestrial. Uh, possibly, yeah, uh, interdimensional uh, or even ultra-terrestrial. You know, are they are these are these beings living on the planet with us and have been since the beginning of time? Are they a sort of a proto-humans? Are they uh, a race uh, that that basically doesn't want to interact with us but nevertheless lives with us? It's scary. We have this tendency to look at things and say, well, our science says X, Y, and Z, so therefore this couldn't happen. Well, we don't know a damn thing about their science and what they can and can't do. But hopefully, uh, with the UAP task force and uh, you know recent recent events, to create a more structured way of looking at this, uh, we'll we'll at least uh, figure out a way to actually approach the topic. Dear entity that's possibly from another dimension or possibly from this dimension, but unseen throughout all of time for some reason. Dear Entity, I'll say this out loud even though you can presumably read my thoughts. Entity, if you're there, can you please flick the lights on and off or something? Some clear response would be great. But please, please don't screw with this recording. I really don't want to have to re-record saying, Dear listener, it's time for an ad break. You'll notice that one big question was missing from our interview with Mellon and Semivan. What should we think now that it appears the program that started all this, ATIP, wasn't an officially funded program? That it was, to use Elizondo's words, an activity. So I reached back out to Semivan and Mellon. Semivan responded saying this. Hi, MJ. I'm the wrong guy to ask about all of this. I am just as confused as you are about the dates and times and other variables surrounding OSAP ATIP. The authoritative source for me is the new Skinwalker book written by Jim Lekatsky and Colm Kelleher, where they explain all the differences between the two organizations. Wish I could help more, but I do know that there was nothing the least bit fishy going on. Best, Jim. Mellon's response was short and off the record. But then he called me and decided, what the heck? All right. So we are recording. I'm just going to confirm that. Yes, we are. Okay. So we are recording. Yes. Perfect. For starters, I wanted to go over some things we've covered in a bit more detail. How did this all first come to Mellon's attention? And what were the state of things? How did you get to the Pentagon to meet with Lou 
where he told you about this? Like what was going on in your world at that time that led to that meeting? 2016, I'm assuming. This was or fall 2016 or very early 2017. Okay. The winter, winter 2016 or the winter of 2016 through 17. According to Mellon, Elizondo had already been talking with Semivan when Semivan invited Mellon to attend a guys who are into weird shit meeting. Okay. So you went to this meeting, you walk in, tell me about the room. Like, what's it like in there? Um, like, like, oh, like well, again. Yeah, it wasn't a huge group of folks. They were, they were officials from a couple of different organizations. And um, there was a, uh, a bit of information sharing going on, and Lou kindly threw aside afterward, and we had a one-on-one meeting. He brought me up to speed on a number of things uh, that were going on. Elizondo had been looking into UAP, talking to the fighter pilots, you know, the whole shebang at this point. And when I found out how long this had been going on, how many incidents had occurred, and that nobody was doing anything about it, I was flabbergasted. I was floored. Right. Mellon gets caught up. He gets outraged. But let's slow this down. How did you find these fighter pilots who, who had these experience? Like, how did, how did that all come together? How, how were you tracking them down? Like, what's the process to, to do all that? Well, that was Lou. Okay, Lou is the one who, who had the connections and had the information. And... Some reports were coming in from the field. Some of the Navy intelligence guys were, were getting some of this information. In one case I heard about, it was uh, actually a, a captain at sea on a carrier <laughs> sending information back saying, what's going on here? And my guys are seeing all this stuff, and, and we don't know what to make of it. These small tactical reports, Mellon says, weren't going up the chain. Uh, just a hand, just basically to a couple of folks like Lou, but none of that was being disseminated. None of it was being written up. You know, policymakers, Secretary of Defense, or senior defense officials, members of the intelligence committees, White House officials, they get morning intelligence briefs and they get finished intelligence products that try to winnow out the, the most important uh, updates and stories and issues for them. And this kind of activity was not making any reporting like that. It, it wasn't being reported up the chain. Like like the, the dirty dozen, right? It's like these weird things nobody talks about, right? Like it's these like little reports that just kind of flow <laughs> in the Navy. And then there's guys on like Lou's end who like, you know, they're just kind of nosing them out. They kind of sniff them out and then they find it and pull it, right? Is that kind of like the right, is that like a right yeah, interpretation? Yeah, that's, yeah, more or less. So for example, those same as videos, they were little snippets. They didn't send in uh, the entire video. They took some snippets and sent it, sent it back to headquarters saying, you know, here's an example of the kind of stuff we're seeing. And nobody wanted, you know, people, a few people saw those reports, didn't know what to do with them, didn't know who to report it to, if anybody, and, and just kind of said, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting, and nothing happened except Lou was seeing some of those reports and gathering as much information as he could, and he was trying to, to shake the tree to, to get some, some things done. So my assumption is Lou like, generated a bunch of reports. He documented all this stuff. Where's all that stuff now? 
Like where's well, the, the meat and potatoes of this? Per, like well, now, the they, now they have the, the UAP task force and its successor, and they're trying to compile all the information, uh, collate it, make sure that Congress is informed because of the reporting requirements that we now have. Also, there's re- requirement for a public report annually, which is terrific. There actually are procedures for reporting this information. You know, that's one of the things that needs to happen that's beginning to happen now. Did Lou have support from his, like, I don't know if co-workers is not the right word, but, like, the people he was working like, was was there? You know, I, I'm going to let you talk to Lou about that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean, like, support, like, political support or anything. More just, like, I'm trying to understand how, the like, the system of, of ATIP itself, you know, how were things ah. documented? How were like how reports came in? How they got let out? What was like the day to day almost? Like that's kind of what I want the audience to understand. Yeah. Like you know what was the day to day? So I was yeah. never involved with ATIP per se. And Lou, after the funding ran out, Lou was scrambling to do what he could as best he can with just bootstrapping with himself and and a few allies in the system who shared his interest and his concern. What Mellon is saying corroborates what we found out in the last episode, but he also used the same phrase Elizondo used after the funding ran out. I wasn't exactly sure what funding he was referring to, so I tried to clarify. Okay, so now how does this kind of split occur between, like, OSAP keeps going for two years until the funding runs out, and how does, like, lose work. I was not present for any of that, MJ. I'm not really in a position to comment, but I have no first-hand information to to offer about that. Fair enough. I've been trying to wrap my head around everything and put it in full context, which has meant spending a lot of time exploring the origins of this stuff, from Skinwalker Ranch to the experimental programs in the 1950s. There's absolutely a connection, but what you make of that connection how relevant it is, is up to you, dear listener. I asked Mellon how he feels about these connections to the weirder stuff coming out. Has this sort of influx of, of all this kind of other information that wasn't, I guess, originally part of the strategy, right? The focus on national defense, the focus on uh, foreign incursions into airspace. Now that kind of the rest of this is coming, kind of the skeletons, let's say, of the ATIP closet, has it been sort of troublesome to, to keep that message on, on task? I think it's fine. It's okay now. The important thing is that it's happening in this order, not the reverse order. If we tried to lead with, you know, guys are getting uh, radiation burns in some cases. Mellon's referring to anecdotal reports of people suffering injuries after encountering these unknown entities. And MRIs and stuff like that, I think that would have been game over. Wouldn't have gotten anywhere. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Doesn't represent an, an obvious or imminent or potential threat to the United States. It's much harder to document. It's much squishier in a way. I've got HIPAA issues. You can't really talk about individual cases. I don't think we would have gotten uh, much momentum or much traction if we had tried to make that the issue. Now it's coming out more and there's more information about it. That's fine. And, and I don't have a problem with that. I, I truly appreciate your time. Like, I swear, this is for the last time I'm going to call you. <laughs> you have been <laughs> nothing but generous. So, I, I again, I, I appreciate you sort of just taking the time and just, like I said, filling in some of these gaps for us and just, like I said, helping us out. I, I, this has been great. 
Oh, well, good. I hope it, uh, hope it works out for you, and uh, thanks for your interest. Thanks very much, Chris. I hope you have a, a great day. So, dear listener, I think there's just one thing left to do. Step back, way back, and see where all the yarn and pins lead us. If the government and military wants to keep a secret, they generally can and can for quite some time. It doesn't always stay 100% secret. Alien State is hosted by me, MJ Benias. It's reported by me and Casey Georgie. Produced by Casey Georgie. Our associate producer is Stephanie Aguilar. Written by Grant Irving, Casey Georgie, and myself. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs and Megan Dietry. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. Music by Nolan Schneider. Sound design by Grant Irving and Sam Baer. Engineering by Sam Baer. Our executive producers are Grant Irving, Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anthony LaPay. Special thanks to Pallavi Kotamasu, Steve Ackerman, Charlie Yador, and Danielle Jones-Wesley. Thanks to our legal team, Nimra Azmi and Alison Shari, for Davis Wright Tremaine. <laughs>